Welcome to the WBT, the Wrathbearing Trees podcast about literature, history, culture, and only if we have to, politics. Everyone on the WBT editorial team has some direct connection to the military. Either we're veterans ourselves or our military spouses. In each episode of the WBT podcast, we take a different subject of interest to us and investigate it. I'm Mary Doyle and your host for this week's show. I'm a veteran of the Army Reserve and have worked as an Army civilian for a couple of decades. I'm also an author and a contributing editor on the Wrathbearing Tree web magazine. Thanks for joining me. In this show, we've turned things over to Amalia Flynn, one of the poetry editors for the Wrathbearing Tree. Amalia is a military spouse and the author of Wife and War, the Memoir. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times At War blog, the Huffington Post, Time, and a number of other blogs and publications. Today, Amalia is speaking to one of the poets the Wrathbearing Tree recently published. It's a conversation between two artists about the art of poetry, the seasons, and what it is to wait for someone to come home from war. Here's Amalia. Lynn Houston is the author of three books, The Clever Dream of Man, The Mauled Keeper, and Unguarded. Unguarded is a collection of poem letters to a deployed soldier. It was the winner of the Heartland Review Press inaugural chapbook contest in 2017. A selection of Houston's unguarded poems appeared in issue 13 of The Wrathbearing Tree. They are poignant poems about war and waiting which is why it is my pleasure to have Lynn Houston here on the poetry segment of the Wrath-Bearing Tree podcast. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So there's so much to talk about with your poems, but first I want to set the scene for listeners so they understand the subject and structure of your book. Because in your book, Unguarded, the poems all focus on a unifying subject and there is a distinct arc structure. Can you share with us what the unifying subject is and describe the arc structure you used in the book? Absolutely. And I, I want to thank you for um, an excellent question, for doing such a careful and close read uh, of my work. Um, and thanks again for having me on the program. Uh, it's really an honor. So. Um, This book comes out of a real situation, and I think that for many of us who are writing about our experiences with military servicemen and servicewomen, um, that that sort of, there's a different set of rules that we're working with in terms of taking a real life situation and fictionalizing it in some way to make it art, um, versus the other way, which would be, you know, using the imagination to create art that somehow resonates with people's real lives. So this was actually a real situation where I was um, dating a man who deployed with his National Guard unit, and um, some of these poems in the book were the actual letters that I sent him. Others got edited, and maybe two two letters got combined into one poem. Um, and so that is uh, essentially the situation here. And and this is a great example, actually, of how an author is not necessarily the best reviewer of her own work, because I actually didn't notice uh, when I was writing the arc structure or the unifying subject. Uh, in the poems, and the first person who actually pointed this out to me was the contest judge who mentioned, oh, this collection is unified by the seasons, and I thought, 
gosh, he's right. I, and I just, you know, of course I kind of knew it on some level, but I wasn't really seeking to write that when I started. I didn't sit down and make a note, oh, you know, make every poem or every other poem about the seasons. So, um, but it really does make sense that the seasons would be featured so prominently as a unifying subject and provide the sort of arc of the book because um, I, I was so attuned to time passing. Um, every day, every hour, you know, every month, every season that changed brought me closer to um, my love coming home. So, of course, I was, you know, it's just, it's the passing of time. And the other aspect of why it makes sense, right, that the seasons would be so prominent in these poems is that the question is, what do people talk about when they can't talk about the elephant in the room, right? which is which are the missions that he was going on due, due to operational security, and he couldn't really tell me what was going on. So what do people talk about when they can't talk about these things? Well, they talk about the weather, you know, how's the weather there and, and all that. So, um, yeah, it, it, it makes sense that the seasons became that unifying subject. Thank you for that explanation. And yes, the seasons and time are so important in the poems. And there's also a sense of waiting in your unguarded poems. First, the waiting for the deployment to happen. And then when it does, waiting for your soldier to come home. Some of the poems themselves written by you to the you that you are waiting for feel like an act of waiting themselves. And the waiting of deployment of a deployment is a peculiar kind of waiting because it involves imagining, imagining the life of your soldier somewhere distant and relatively unknown and imagining the future when he comes home also distant and relatively unknown. In your poem titled, You Leave for Afghanistan, you write about the future you imagine. You say, when you come home safely to me in six months, we will be able to say nothing important has been lost. And in The Persistence of Measurement, you write, Part of me will always be waiting for the return of the man I met in summer before the deployment changed him. Can you describe the role of waiting in your unguarded poems and the act of imagining the future, a future that ultimately does not exist? Yes, another great question. Um, I think in many ways, I just signed I just signed a copy of Unguarded to a young woman who's engaged to um, a young man in the Navy, and he just deployed. And I'm friends with her on Facebook, and I, I see how difficult this waiting is for her, um, for him to come back um, so that they can start their lives together. Uh, and it's it's difficult. You, you try to find something constructive and creative to fill that space. And so I think these poem letters for me were a way of marking that time, of doing something creative and constructive um, with that space just to try to kind of occupy myself. You know, people say keep occupied. Um, and I had plenty going on, but it was a way to kind of reserve a space every day um, to devote to him. Uh, and in some ways it was great, it helped. In other ways, um, just being um, somebody's significant other while he's deployed is absolutely exhausting. Um, and I'm sure that you can speak to this, but you try to be someone's tether to America um, and you put your own life on hold, you worry constantly, um, 
they, you know, they contact you at odd hours, so you always have to have your phone on, your, your various technological devices on because you don't want to miss anything. You know, even when you're sleeping, you leave the phone on. So it's like you're on call 24 seven. Um, and it really puts you on edge and nobody trains you for this. Nobody can really prepare you for this until you're living it. Um, and, and what's kind of, what was kind of difficult about my situation is I was only his girlfriend. I wasn't a wife, you know, um, what haunted me was that no one would have even known to contact me if something bad would have happened. Um, so his regular checking in was very important to me, but it was also, you know, just, completely exhausting to be in this support role to somebody deployed. Um, and so I spent a lot of time, I had my writing desk set up in front of this window, uh, and so I just spent a lot of time waiting at my window. And it's surprising when you think about it, there's actually a number of other women authors who write about the kinds of epiphanies that happen when a woman sits and looks out a window. Um, and I, I haven't explored that fully. I mean, maybe some of your listeners uh, can add to this. I came up with um, some Kate Chopin short stories that have that. Mm. Uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's uh, the, the Yellow Wallpaper, I believe, The Window Played an Important Role in that story. So now I've become kind of fascinated, you know, um, since you brought this up, actually, I've become kind of fascinated thinking about this notion of um, women waiting in front of windows and what happens in that space. Um, that was me. If there was a window and I could see the seasons changing from that window. Um, but, uh, you know, th it, it ended in heartbreak. It didn't, it didn't end really the way I thought it was going to end. And originally, the collection of poems... Um, ended uh, at the persistence, not the persistence of measurement, ended on um, the, um, at the Harbor Lights Motel. Originally it, it ended there and I thought everything was gonna be okay. Um, and it was just as I started sending these out, these poems out that everything kind of fell apart. So my publisher allowed me to add some of those last, maybe those last three poems or so that explain how things turned out, that they, they did not, the relationship did not survive. Um, but ultimately, these letters, they were for his morale. You know, they, they were meant to be real letters that he received. I had asked him, I said, you know, would it help for you to receive actual physical letters, even though we were emailing at least once a day? Um, and he said yes. So the purpose behind these these poems were really, weren't really intended to convey kind of real information. It kind of real information we handled over email, your text message or whatever it was, um, Google Hangouts. Um, so there, these weren't really supposed to convey any kind of information, maybe just my feelings, um, but they ended up becoming the thing that made it all worthwhile in a, in a way, funny way. Yeah. <laughs> that is so fascinating. And it's especially the part about, you know, writing them in real time and and having them be kind of this token of that time. Um, and, and also just the idea of the, now you've got me thinking about the window and the waiting. Um, I remember looking for a house uh, here in Rhode Island years ago, and it was an old house, and um, it had like, not really a tower, you couldn't go up into it, but it was like this, this little, you know, uh, little raised area on the roof, and the realtor said, that's the widow's peak. And, you know, when the men would go out to see. Um, so this is like a very historic thing, you know, um, <laughs> historical thing about the waiting. 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And what captured me uh, about uh, your poems at first, the unguarded poems, was the focus on war in terms of what it does, what it does to soldiers who deploy and what it does to those waiting for them back at home. You just mentioned the idea of, you know, your relationship status about not being notified, um, possibly, and what that means. And, and that idea, I remember one of the first poems I wrote about uh, deployment was called Notification. It's this idea of notification. It's a very kind of haunting notion, no matter, you know, who you are at home. Um, um, so, and, and what it does to soldiers who deploy um, so, and what it does to those waiting back at home and what it does to the relationships um, when they do come home and everything is different. In your poem, you call from the airport to say you are home. You write, how generous is war to give us two beginnings. How generous is war to give us two beginnings. That's my favorite line. This line speaks to a truth about deployment because war does, in fact, give military couples a new beginning but that truth is always layered. And another layer of it is that the new beginning is often not what we expected. It is often jolting and painful because war and then coming home can be difficult. This topic of war and what it does, as I said, is one of my own focuses in my own writing. Um, and I think it's such an important part of the conversation we have about war, both in the literary world and in the public square. And I'm wondering whether this is something you set out to do with your unguarded poems, um, either when you were writing them or compiling them. Were you intending to enter the larger conversation about war and express something about what war does to your readers that may not have ever experienced war? Yes. Um, and it, it's so funny because I didn't originally uh, set out to uh, position myself in this way, but after... The, the chapbook won the contest, I thought, gosh, I know that there are other people who have written about this before I did, and one of the first things I stumbled upon was your blog, Wife in War, um, and I was so happy to just discover I wasn't alone, and that these poems were entering a conversation that predated me, um, and so since uh, the book was, since the book won the contest, I've, um, been kind of immersing myself in this community and I've been I'm, I'm thrilled to meet you virtually here tonight and I just I met a bunch of your fellow wrath bearing tree editors at, at AWP recently in person after sort of corresponding over social media and email um, and so I don't I don't think originally I thought this was going to happen but it has and I'm so happy uh, but what it, what it has raised for me is that um, my childhood was haunted by Vietnam, by the war. My father was drafted a month after he and my mother were married. There's a poem in Unguarded that talks about that. Um, and so I think, you know, when Adam deployed, I'm going to call him Adam for the purposes of this, uh, when Adam deployed so soon after we met, something from my childhood resurfaced, something about war um, I was conceived while my father was home on leave from Vietnam, so I'm quite literally a child of the Vietnam War. And so I've begun wondering, and, and trying to process these experiences from my childhood, I've begun wondering if kind of what you might call peripheral experiences of war can almost lie dormant for years until something calls them back up again. 
Um, I know this can happen with other traumas. Um, and, and I've also started to, um, I attended uh, the play Outside Paducah by James A. Mode. And in that play, it dawned on me that other people are also working on writing about war from the perspective of its ripples. You know, if you imagine war as a pebble in a lake, that first ring, that first ripple is the, the military personnel, the veteran, right? The serviceman or woman. Um, but there are other rings that go beyond that, and the, it's the it's the spouses, it's the children, it's the neighbors, you know. And I don't know where those ripples stop, but I think that that right now, um, you other other writers, um, John Dubrow, Elise Fenton, uh, Siobhan Fallon, Andrew Williams, Lisa Houlihan Stice, I love the women who are really contributing to these kinds of conversations. Also, James A. Mode I mentioned also trying to figure out. Um, how war has this multiplying effect in terms of who it impacts in our culture, not just the veteran him or herself, um, which we also need to do better work on understanding, but you don't have to have been deployed for war to impact you. And I think the more people understand um, the toll it takes on a, a whole community, um, that I think we're gonna be better as a society um, and we're going to have a much different relationship to war. I think, you know, for most of my young adulthood, um, I was not oblivious, but it's easy to turn a blind eye. It's easy to not want to know what we're asking people to do when we send them to war, when we, you know, put the X on a ballot to vote for a certain politician who sends people to war. Um, it's, it's almost like we don't want to know. So um, I'm really glad to be a part of this community now um, because it does, it can be a very lonely and isolating experience to be the person waiting at home. Um, and you learn you learn to bond with those people. Uh, and so thank you, thank you for including me in this war writing community. Oh, well, it's our pleasure to have you. And I think that writing as you spoke to uh, is so important to share. I mean, what's been so lively about the, the community of war writers is that um, sharing all these different stories of war to the larger community really lets people um, access it in a way that they may not have and see it as a very multi-dimensional experience and and you know I think that's really important it can bridge that um, civilian military divide yeah 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 so that's great um, and the title of your book, Unguarded, that word choice, Unguarded, it does a lot of work in terms of my imagination. After I read um, your poetry, I kept just going back after each poem and thinking about that word, unguarded. Um, and I was thinking about what it means to guard and also not to guard, what it means to be guarded and to be unguarded as a person, as a military unit, as a country, and as humanity. And I'm wondering about your experience of your own title, how you feel it speaks to the poems individually and how it works to unify them and how it's asking the reader or if it's asking the reader larger questions about the act of guarding or the absence of guarding. Yes, um, the original title before I sent anything out was something like attention comms unit or something along those lines, which really right. wasn't as maybe poignant or meaningful, 
Um, but when I realized that this was um, the, the plan words, you know, obviously has to do with the fact that Adam uh, left this National Guard unit and I was left unguarded. Uh, you know, who who's there to look out for me when he's away um, at war? Uh, but also that I had I had not done a very good job of guarding my heart, which obviously you know if you want to fall in love you can't guard your heart too closely. So unguarded I think in the end became a lot more about my heart, my state of mind, or emotional state of being um, when I fell in love with Adam, um, and then he had to go. Um, I when you know you meet someone how well do you have to know someone before you decide to commit I'd only really known him a few weeks but it was um, what they call in French a, a coup de foudre which is like a like a lightning strike you know it was one of those sort of our first date was technically a, a 20-hour conversation we just couldn't stop talking to each other and so when he had to go and I knew from the first day I met him that he should have already been deployed um, I didn't want him to be penalized for going off to war, for doing his duty. So we had a conversation in which we decided to be faithful to each other, and I knew that it was a gamble. I knew that it was a risk, but I just couldn't penalize him for doing what he had to do. So I decided to stand by him in that way. It ultimately did not work out, but I, I really wouldn't, I wouldn't change that part of it. I wouldn't. Um, since then, I, I've had some problems trusting, and that has to do with guarding one's heart. Um, but um, he needed he needed support. He needed someone to support him. Uh, who guards those who guard us? You know, mm. uh, the role really of the spouses in some ways. Nobody talks. I mean, we we talk about this, but nobody beyond us really talks about this. Um, the kind of emotional support work that's necessary to send someone off to war. Um, and I wanted my love to do that for him, you know, but it was very difficult. Um, and even more difficult when he came home and really, um, you know, didn't make good on his promises and communication broke down. Um, but that's maybe another story, maybe another book of poems. <laughs> right, right. Thank you. Um, I was also thinking when I was reading your poems that, and I tend to see things uh, not just poetically, but ecologically. And to me, your poetry is ecological because nature becomes this sort of semi-character. There's a leopard moth with its powdery wings, the goat and goatless clouds. There's planes shaped like birds, your hummingbird bodies, the turtles with heads withdrawn into shells, and that buried runt of a lamb. In Silent Spring, Carson titles one of her chapters with a line from Keats, though the sedge is withered from the lake and no birds sing. Carson is focused on the toxicity of DDT and the devastating effects of it on the environment, particularly the bird population. But your poems seem to be speaking to the idea of a personal toxicity that happens when someone you love goes to war and comes back different. Can you describe what you were trying to say about this, about what happens um, when someone goes to war and because of that experience is, um, you know, your relationship is changed and how this theme of war is interacting with the ecological presence in your poems? Sure. And this is also super, super insightful um, about 
how these how this work turned out it is about a kind of um, growing toxicity uh, in the failure of that relationship and the loss and the distance there it was almost as if the landscape had lost its luster for me almost like everything that spring refused to come back to life um, certainly everything on the farm in Tennessee where I met Adam um, had been so vivid and so lively that for me it was all linked in my mind to him even though it's probably not true um, but I'm so impressed that you saw this about this collection because thinking about it um, it wasn't until I had another intense experience of being close to nature that I actually started to heal from the breakup, the loss of that relationship. And I, I had to go out to Nebraska, actually, to another writing residency. Being on the farm in Tennessee was actually, I was there for a writing residency. Um, and I went out to Nebraska, and the, the landscape there is incredibly intense. And so that was this past summer. I lived in this old farmhouse without air conditioning, and we were remodeling the roof. Uh, and a bunch of thunderstorms, rainstorms passed by before we got that roof buttoned up. So it was literally raining inside the farmhouse where I was living. Um, but just, uh, you know, swimming in the river, being around the corn as it was growing so quickly, um, riding my bike past an animal sanctuary. So I, I, I was able to have another experience like the one I had in Tennessee, and that kind of brought me back. Um, so yeah, these poems were were born of a kind of um, a kind of vibrancy that I felt from nature um, at that writing residency on that working farm. It, it was it was a beautiful farm that really um, inspired my work. So I was in the right headspace creatively um, to 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 produce it. Yeah, I love that because nature is so healing and also so visceral. Right. And it echoes it echoes, uh, you know, our lives and our lives echo it. So I just love that. Um, I read in an, another review uh, about your book that the, the soldier in your book was deployed more than once and that your time with him that summer was in between deployments. Um, at the end of the poetic arc, we find out that he comes back from the latest deployment, that deployment after his summer with you on the farm um, changed. Are you trying to convey in your poems something about not just what deployment does, but about the erosive effects of repeated deployments on those who deploy and on the relationships that they have with those who wait for them? Yes, and before I met Adam, I had no idea um, how uh, much our military personnel have been deployed. In the last 12 years, he had been active duty for six um, and it, it really, it made his life very difficult. It made having relationships very difficult. Um, and I, I couldn't have known this in the few weeks I knew Adam before he deployed, but I, I, I afterwards came to understand that he was very badly injured um, by a previous deployment to Iraq. Um, and so actually, if you don't mind, I think I can answer your question by reading a found poem um, it, it's made up from an email he had sent me during his deployment. We were still together. He, it was um, right before Thanksgiving. Uh, he was reflecting on, it was a 10-year anniversary 
of this um, of his near death in Iraq. And I, I wanted to include the poem in Unguarded, but it's, those aren't, they're not my words, it's not my story, these belong to him. So I'd like to read it because I think it gives context, but I, I didn't ultimately include it in the book. Is that all right? Oh, I would love it. Okay, great. It's called The Difference of a Millimeter. I don't remember the explosion, but this is what I was told. The truck's front left took the brunt of it, the floor ripped open. Artillery shells burst through the driver's side, taking Brad's legs and shattering his lower spine. The engine was thrown into Jorge, breaking his legs in several places. A piece of shrapnel the size of a playing card wedged between the plate and fabric of Neil's vest. Thrown from the Humvee, I lost my memory, some of my hearing and mobility in my knees. I woke up roadside, ran to pull Brad from the vehicle, set tourniquets on his legs. We carried him to medical transport, and then I wandered off into the desert. Someone stopped me, and I passed out. The next morning, I woke in a field hospital to a sound like the rattle of a spray paint can. It was a plastic jar in the hands of the Marine next to me a sniper's bullet inside. It had lodged in the tissue of his head after it hit his helmet and ricocheted when it hit bone. Brad eventually recovered. He lives a full life as a bilateral amputee. Jorge travels the world as a consultant for event planning. Neil is a preacher at a small church near the Kentucky border. Matt is a police officer and personal trainer. I am the only one still in the military. I think a lot about the difference a millimeter makes to a poet, a carpenter, a machinist, a neurosurgeon. It matters where we are and what we are trying to accomplish. The fact is that war sucks, but our enemies bring it to us, and I feel obligated to fight back, sometimes as a combatant, sometimes simply by living a good, fulfilling life. Oh, that's harrowing and very, very beautiful at the same time, which I think speaks to relationships during war, both harrowing and there's the beauty as well. Um, And also just that that's a glance, a glimpse, a window, so to say, into the landscape of his life, right? Of a deployment. Yeah. So on to another landscape, the farm. The farm um, is, is also this character in your poems. Um, and the poems that focus on the time that you spend together take place on this farm, a place where neither of you are anymore and a place that now exists in your memory. When I was reading them, it made me think of the Didion quote, a, play, a place belongs forever to whoever claims it. A place belongs forever to whoever claims it hardest, remembers it most obsessively, wrenches it from itself, shapes it, renders it, loves it so radically that he remakes it in his own image. How is the farm functioning as a literary device in terms of place for you? Another great question. Um, And thinking about this farm as place, I'm I'm thinking about um, my family's background. You know, I come 
from working class people. One grandfather was a coal miner, the other an iron worker, um, one grandmother a factory seamstress, and the other one actually came from a farming family, but you know tried to distance herself from those origins. So I feel like as a person, I have this need to do work that feels physical. Funny that I ended up being a writer, you know, where we sort of just stare at a blank screen a lot of the times. But I do like, if at all possible, to do work that has real concrete effects in the world. I like, I like to work with my hands. So my time on that farm in Tennessee, while it was part of a writing residency, it was also an active farm. And we were expected to do these chores um, in exchange for our lodging and board. So I woke up every day on that farm really feeling um, a part of something. You're feeling just surrounded by green and light and the kind of creativity that, that, that bursts through when things are thriving around you. Um, I really did feel like I was at the center of something, or maybe more accurately, like I was part of a web, a part of a web of life. I know that sounds kind of cliche, but um, part of the heartbreak of losing Adam was discovering that the community of writers there in Tennessee um, who had let me in, had, and that all sort of fell apart, my connections with them as well. Um, he got them in the breakup, right? <laughs> so when I lost him, I also lost access to that community. Um, and I, I, at one point, I wasn't sure which breakup was worse, losing him or losing the community. Um, so it wasn't just you know the animals or... The, the land of the farm, it was, it was the people at that place as well. Uh, similar, you know, people who come from working class families who were now writers. Um, I felt, I felt among kin there, uh, but it, it didn't, it didn't work out. I've actually gone back to Tennessee a few times since, and I have to admit that the whole state, not just the area where I met Adam, is gorgeous. Uh, and whenever I'm there, I always think of that line. Um, there's a poem by Wallace Stevens, Anecdote of a Jar. When he's referring to this man-made jar, he says, it did not give a birder bush like nothing else in Tennessee. And Tennessee really is just green and bird and bush. Um, so yeah, I, I'll always have Tennessee, no matter what, even if I don't go back to that particular farm. There are other farms, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. I was wondering if you would read another poem for us. Absolutely, yes. Um, I would like to read, uh, following up on, on the, you know, the notion of the farm and how it really set the stage for a lot of the poems I wrote to Adam, the poem letters I wrote to him while he was deployed. Everyone gets a kick out of this goat. They call it the goat poem. Um, and so I'll read... Uh, on the farm, there was no one to tell. Henry was the first to know I was your woman. Henry the goat, the one who hates you. Since then, I've been surprised by how often clouds take the shape of curled horns and remind me of that Tennessee morning we left a shared bed to feed the herd and took the smell of lovemaking with us. Like any hard-headed man, when Henry knew I was yours, he wanted me for a goat wife, butted my thigh and bit my boot top, rubbed his face against its orange leather. Aware 
of Henry's macho display and the force of his horns, you turned your back on me and walked toward the house, knowing that to keep me safe, you had to leave. Wow, thank you so much. Lynn Houston, author of Unguarded, thank you so much for talking about your poetry with me and with our listeners. This is Amalia Flynn, a poetry editor for The Wrath-Bearing Tree. Thank you for listening. Thank you for having me. Have a great night. Thank you. That's all the time we have. Remember to check out the website at www.wrathbearingtree.com. That's one word, wrathbearingtree.com. Subscribe to the website or become one of our supportive patrons. If you're a writer, we invite you to submit works of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, reviews, and commentary to our website for inclusion in a future edition. That's WBT for this time. I'm Mary Doyle. Thanks for listening.